Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier and you are listening to episode 220 of the MyFit Podcast. And this week, I'm honored to bring back world-renowned sports psychologist, author of 18 books, and keynote speaker, Dr. Jim Lair. Dr. Lair has spent the past 40 years researching, studying, and teaching athletes how to lead with character, become more resilient, and gain a mental edge. Dr. Lair has worked with over 400,000 athletes over his career, including 17 number one athletes in a variety of sports. Dr. Lair was a pioneer in the mental performance field starting back in the 1970s when nobody even knew what mental performance was, and he is still working hard today to improve his craft and create more awareness around the power of our minds. I have so many things that I would love to sit down and talk to Dr. Lair about. I was ecstatic that he was willing to come back on the show for a round two. When I say that I stand on the shoulders of giants, Dr. Lair is one of those giants. He was in the field very early and is somebody that has done so many things for the mental performance industry. And he continues, like I said, to improve his craft, put out more books, put out more research and just continue to grind. It's truly admirable as he is now around 80 years old. The first topic we got into were, was a quote that he said. And uh, the basis of the quote is who you become as a result of the chase is the most important thing. I'm going to say that one more time. Who you become as a result of the chase is the most important thing. We took some time to peel back the onion about what it means to be a part of the chase and how it's how important it is to lead with character. Then we got into some applicable ways that coaches can create a character-first culture. Then we got into another one of his best-selling books, The Power of Story, and how storytelling determines our destiny. Then we talked about how to align our inner voice and our outer voice so we can have true authenticity. Then we talked about the 16-second cure, which I find really fascinating. And then we dove into his latest book, Wise Decisions. And in the book, there's a seven-step process to ground yourself before making a wise decision. And then at the end, I was just itching to know more wisdom from Dr. Lair. So I had to ask, what is something that has been consistent over the last 40 years in sports psychology? And then what's also something that he's changed his mind on? If you enjoyed this conversation and you want to learn more from Dr. Lair, I highly encourage you to check out episode 163 of the MyFit podcast, which was our first episode together. Also, if you found value in this conversation, please be sure to leave a rating, review, and share it on your social medias. Your five-star feedbacks helps this show grow tremendously and helps bring on more phenomenal guests like Dr. Lair. 
Let's go. MyFit Podcast is brought to you by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. With none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, and no BS. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. And it makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent things like muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. There are several flavors to choose from. My favorite is the citrus salt, which is how I start every single day. And as listeners of the MyFit Podcast, you can now receive a free Element sample pack with any order by using the link www.drinkelement.com forward slash MyFit. Again, that's www.drinkelement.com forward slash M-I-F-I-T. Go get yours now. Dr. Jim Lair, welcome back to the MyFit Podcast round two. It's such a pleasure to have you back on the show. You're somebody that I truly admire and look up to in this space. Well, thank you, DJ. I'm excited to have another opportunity for another conversation. You do your homework and uh, you have a passion for this area as well. So I'm excited and I hope we can create some value for all your audience. Absolutely. I want to start with a quote and I stole it from you on one of your keynotes and I posted it on my Instagram, Dr. Jim, recently. And I had a ton of people get back to me with um, hearts and exclamations and that's right. And this is great. So I want to read this back to you. You said it maybe four or five years ago, and I want you to kind of break it apart and see, you know, after hearing it, after hearing me go through it, what goes through your mind? It goes like this. The truth is that the obsession to achieve extrinsic success in sport by coaches, parents, and kids, the obsession to win at all costs, is undermining the basic fabric of sport and threatens the well-being of legions of developing athletes. This causing burnout and overuse injuries may impact them for a lifetime. The truth is that the real value of competitive sport is in helping athletes become stronger human beings for life. More important than the chase to the top is who the person is becoming as a result of that chase. And most of the youth in sport will never make professional athletes, but we are professionalizing the chase. It's a tragic miscalculation. And the truth is that sports provide an incredible platform for character building and building strengths that will pour into other areas of their lives for as long as they live. When coaches take the character first approach, Athletes will always look back on the sport and you as a special gift, the gift that helped them prepare for what they're going to face. I absolutely love it. We could probably spend a whole hour just talking about that. But as you hear that and you get that smile on your face, Dr. Jim, what comes to mind? Oh, gosh, it's been so much of the core of my life. Um, you know, I was reading this morning of a coach who I don't know why he did it, but his athletes did not perform at the level that is a football coach. And as punishment, he had them do 400 push-ups in an hour. And many of them ended up, and they weren't allowed to drink, and many of them ended up in the hospital and got hurt pretty seriously, I guess. And it's unfortunate because, you know, so many people have been taught to 
who believe that achievement is the ultimate criteria for success. And that <clears throat> achievement means winning, winning the, the title, winning all the accolades. Um, and this notion that, you know, if you're a loser, you know, um, in sport, you're probably going to be a loser in life. And so let's get this combination right. And then there are the outliers, like John Wooden, who demonstrated that winning is possible when you have the priorities right. And the priority for him was leveraging the sport of basketball to help these young men become better human beings. And he was a staunch disciplinarian. He actually required everybody put their socks on in the same way because he didn't want people to get blisters. And he felt discipline around all these different um, aspects of basketball will help you understand how to become a more disciplined human being in life and be truly successful in raising your own children and in the work that you'll do eventually. And I believe that his understanding and his practice of that, he demonstrated that when you get the person first and the athlete second, um, You've got it wired up right, and you can be a winner. But if you don't win, you still have this invaluable experience for the rest of your life that'll help you become a better, more fully functioning human being. And if we can, in fact, understand that the game, there is a big game. There's the game of life, and then there's the game that we're playing today in sport. One is for real. And one is all practice. And the practice is simply helping to find the skill sets and the things that will help you become a better, more character-driven person um, for the rest of your life. But if you become a prima donna, if you become um, a screaming narcissist, uh, what we sometimes referred to as kind of... Um, a queen or a king because you actually can do your sport better than anyone else, um, a prima donna, you know, we may have set you up for the rest of your life in a way that will really have tragic long-term consequences. We know that a great human being is one that has integrity and honesty and has compassion and, and uh, kindness and humility and generosity. And if those assets can be part of the success of building an athlete, imagine where that can take you. And that is what some of the greatest coaches have done. And what a coach um, really has more power than you ever really believe at the time. A, co a coach is sacred in terms of the lives of an athlete. And if a coach believes in you and helps you understand you have more inside you than you ever dreamed possible and does it in the right way, they can change the trajectory of your life. I had a coach by the name of Coach Guy Gibbs, who was my basketball coach. And in almost all my books, I reference him as having changed the trajectory of my life. And I you know, told him multiple times he recently, in the last month, he passed away. but extraordinary human being who impacted the lives of countless young men 
young boys, and I was one of them. And I will never forget him. And I've had a lot of people in my life, but I credit him for having an impact on my life when I needed it most. He was more interested in me as a person than as someone that could make him famous as a coach. You know, when so many coaches leverage, see players either as assets to help them win more and add to their portfolio of genius. And uh, so they can discount players very quickly because they just don't, they don't seem to have what it takes to help my record be outstanding. And so it's a really, really important issue. I appreciate you raising it because every chance I get to talk about this, um, I, I love to do it because we are hooked on achievement. Parents are hooked on achievement. Parents believe that their the ultimate scorecard for their success or failure as a parent is how how much achievement their kids actually uh, can be um, noted for. Um, if they have high achieving kids, that means they were great parents. Unfortunately, that's not the scorecard that really matters at the end of our lives. It's not how much you achieved. It, it's who you became as a person, as a consequence of the chase. You talked about in one of your other talks about, you know, the football coach that comes up to you and says, man, Dr. Lair, I, I like what you're saying, but I don't have time for this. I, I'm, I get paid for the X's and O's. This is what I've been trained for. I've been working on coming up with systems and all this stuff. Now you want me to get into character development. I'm, I'm not nuanced in this, and this isn't a part of my job title. A little bit of arrogance there, but Dr. Lair, what do you say to somebody like that? And then maybe what are some baby steps for coaches out there to start introducing that character first model? So I've heard that more than once uh, <laughs> coaches saying, wait a minute. Do you realize how much I have on my plate? And now, Dr. Lair, you're coming to me and telling me now I've got to be an expert on character. Give me a break. I'm not a character expert. I don't even want to become a character expert. I'm a football expert, and I'm constantly trying to push the envelope to get more understanding. So, uh, and I think a lot of coaches feel like that. I didn't need this training when I was a player. I, I was a very good football player or whatever, whatever the coach is saying. And I became a pretty decent coach and I was a very good player. Why do I need to go back and learn all this philosophical or psychological mumbo jumbo about character? So, and, and coaches are usually, particularly football coaches, are very tough about that. So, <clears throat> You know, I, I understand that, um, I, I will say this, it surprises me. I have to pinch myself that Jim Lair, who's written all these books on mental toughness and competitive winning, ends up in the character space. I'm going, how in the heck did I end up here? And people go, yeah, we have the same feeling, Lair. <laughs> so um, I will tell you how I got there. I'm a data guy. We had some 400,000 people go through the Institute, 17 number ones in the world, all these high achievers, chess champions, sumo wrestlers, Navy SEALs, um, uh, Blue Angels precision flying team, on and on. And these are 
really surgeons and surgical teams and critical care workers of all kind, uh, anti-terrorist units, and they have to perform and they have to perform. And the consequences are not, you know, losing a game. Someone could die. These are really mission critical venues. And when we put all the data together, and I kept looking at it, I love big data sets and trends and seeing how outcome measures actually are playing themselves out and hypotheses. And what the data led us to was that the most important dimension of uh, success in a sustained way is um, what we might call the character or the spiritual dimension, your honesty, your integrity, your humility, the sense that um, you're connected to other human beings. It's not all about you. Um, that you you have a genuine sense of connection, empathy and compassion and caring for other people. And you can get to the top and walk over dead bodies to get there. There's no question about it. There are lots of ways to scale the mountain. But if you want to be a sustained winner, you're going to have to have a portfolio, a boatload of character strengths because people see through your nonsense and can see that you're using all these players simply to build your legacy. And they start to resent it. And people who have, people don't forget how you treated them on the way to the top. And they begin to say, you know, I'm not so sure I want that guy at the helm. You can get there, but you're not going to stay there very long because people don't have respect for you. They don't like you. And just because you're a winner in a sport doesn't mean anything. It means you might be able to, you know, you know, be a genius in strategy, or you might be able to get people to the X and O's. You just have a more of an insight than others. But again, I'm going to take you back to who you are as a person. And if the person isn't right, the rest of it doesn't matter. So how does a coach, what's a, what's one thing a coach can do? They're like, man, okay, you convinced me I'm on board. What's one thing I can do to start building this culture? So the word you use there is really important. Culture. Culture is what really builds um, the essence of a team. And coaches have to have priorities. They have to have one of the most important priorities and your athletes need to know what your priorities are and you need to build this into your culture from day one. And then you have to live this in the reality of how you coach or people will think of you as a total fraud. That if you don't live what you say is important, at the beginning, and you say that character matters most to me, here's what I want most of all from you. I want, I want you to be straight up with me. I'm going to be straight up with you. I want truth. I want, um, I want you to understand that we are a team. It's not about you. I want you to understand. I want you to develop a, a caring and a, an acceptance, a tolerance, a patience for other people on the team when they don't do as well. I want you to treat others the way you want to be treated. 
I want you to uh, give your absolute best effort and have a great attitude regardless of the outcome. I want to see energy and effort. But most of all, I want you to become a better person because you are on this team. And I'm going to be watching every single day how, how much respect you show your opponents, how much respect you show, how much loyalty you show to the people on this team. And you put your differences and you put your you know, squabbles and all the little things that upset you about certain people. I want those put away. You exist on this team for one reason, and that is to make everyone better on this team. It is not about you. It will never be about you. And it's not about me as your coach. I want you to make every single person on this team better. And we're going to win as a unit. No one person is going to make this happen. And then you build that culture from day one and you hold people accountable to those rules, to those uh, parameters, and you walk your talk most importantly when you talk about respect, when you talk about it's not about you and you really have a sense of how difficult what it is you're asking of your players and when they don't measure up, you try to find ways to help them recalibrate and get better. And every day I want you to get better. I'm going to get better as a coach, and I want you to get better. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Let's get better. And that, that is a great message to send every day to get your players to become better persons first and better athletes second. I've mentioned before, I've, I've read all your stuff. I've listened to so much, so I don't know where this came from exactly, but you have three main questions to ask yourself in in when we're talking about the, everything under the umbrella of the chase number one what am i chasing number two why am i chasing it and number three maybe most importantly who am i and who are those i lead becoming in consequence of the chase can you go through yeah. the importance of those three questions so uh you know human beings are born to chase we weren't born to be couch potatoes and just hanging out. We have kind of a built-in mechanism for conserving energy because our ancestors had to conserve energy. And the only those the only those things that really enhanced survival were the things they went after because those who didn't really conserve energy when resources, food, and water were scarce, they didn't make it till Tuesday. Well, we have plenty of that now. What we want to do now is to figure out, you know, what what is it that we want to devote our lives to? What is it that really is the most important mission that you are, that will define your ultimate success as a human being? You won the lottery of life. You're not going to become an extraordinary person by just sitting around and really hoarding your energy. you got to decide what it is you're going to chase. And so, you know, you can chase a lot of things. You can chase money. You can chase fame. You can chase pleasure, you can chase notoriety, whatever it is, and you can also chase becoming a better character-driven person. And they all require a lot of, a ton of work, because none of that is gifted. You have to go after it. And, uh, and then the issue is, why in the heck are you chasing it? I mean, what, what, what is worth, I mean, what are you chasing? It's just like, why don't you just hang out and just do nothing? Well, I mean, I've seen folks do that, and so have you. But the problem is, um, 
It's just like those who decide to, to retire and they go into retirement and they sit on the front porch sipping martinis and watching all the nutcases go by chasing stress. And they, and they assume that will be happiness for them. And in about a week, they're sitting there going, ah, this is not that fulfilling. What am I doing here? This is terrible. We were born to chase, but we want to chase the right thing for the right reason. And what we've learned in our work and so many others in the research world in terms of uh, extrinsic and intrinsic motivation uh, and achievement motivation, we've learned that intrinsic markers, I uh, think I would call it a transcendent purpose, that when you devote your life, when you're chasing for a reason, that is well beyond your own self-interest, that you're actually doing something to actually make others and the world maybe a little better through whatever it is you're doing, bring more joy, more happiness, more fulfillment to others. You become happy when you make other people happy. You don't chase happiness directly. It's a byproduct. And if you are doing it for a reason that actually extends way beyond you, your life was a gift. It was never about you. It never should be about you. And the more you get that and you chase to actually bring more value into the world because you are here, um, your, your motive is right. And you're, whether it's in sport or accounting or being a great mother or father to your children, or I don't care what it is you're doing, you've got to chase and you got to get better every day because you are not good enough. Jim Lair is not good enough. And I will never be good enough because I want to be, I want to every single day say I'm pushing the envelope to expand my capacity uh, to, uh, to do more in this life. And I will push to the end of my, of the wick on my candle until that, that is actually, there's nothing left. And so I think when we understand that that is really the essence of life, that we are reservoirs of energy, first and foremost. And we want to take that potential energy and convert it to kinetic energy and do something with our lives. We want to do something with it. And I'll tell you what opens the vault of your energy reserves. And that's a purpose bigger than yourself. Purpose opens the vault to your energy so that you actually start spending like, a, like there's no tomorrow. As long as you are a big spender, you want to have a big life, you got to be a big spender, but then you have to make the appropriate deposits. You got to have enough recovery physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, or you'll run out of gas. And so a lot of people don't chase that hard because they're afraid they'll, they won't have the energy to keep it going. And that is a miscalculation. I believe that we are sprinters in life. You sprint hard, you sprint with your family. You sprint with, I want to sprint here on this podcast. I want to sprint with you. I want you sprinting with me. And then we're done. We want to recover. And you, you basically have this stress and recoveries, energy out, energy in equation. And if you honor the way the system was designed, you can do this for a lifetime. We were born to be sprinters. The marathon doesn't work in life, even though we're going to go to 80 years. We want to break that 80 years up into sprints, and I want to sprint when it's important and chill when it's not, but I need both in life. And I don't want to be chilling 
when it's really important. I don't want to be recovering when I'm doing a podcast with DJ, period. I love it. I love the part two. I think it's there's a key distinction. Who am I? And second part, who are those I lead becoming in consequence of the chase? Because the chase, as you said, yes, you are maybe on your own independent chase, but there's others that are going to go with you. You know, the famous quote of if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. There's a key distinction between not only who are you becoming, Dr. Lair, but who are those you lead becoming? Yeah, it's such an important understanding. Everyone's watching. Mm-hmm. Your children are watching. Mm-hmm. Your all of your family family members are watching. All those in your work and all of the community settings you're in. People, people more powerful than what you say is what you do with your behavior and how you treat others. And so it's very important that you recognize that if you have passion and it really isn't about you, are people going to pick that up? And that's where your joy comes from. Everything you do, you kind of have a sense of, you know, I, this is, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to have, to share this experience. And, um, you know, it's just a, and you are a living model of what you are teaching. If you want to teach something, be it in your own life. And that's how people actually come to respect you. So you, whether you know it or not, you know, is you know, like in the sport of tennis, it's an individual sport. But there are parents in the box, there's coaches, there's physios, there's a psychologist, there's uh, family members, um, and then all, you are leading in a sense, there is a team there. You're not all by yourself. You could have never gotten to that center court without a boatload of people behind you helping you along the way. And a lot of athletes, a lot of tennis players don't recognize, they think it was all them. No, this is not about them. It was the team that enabled you to have your day. And when you model, uh, as Roger Federer does, a sense of perspective and gratefulness and loyalty, and he honors those that spend so much of their energy on his behalf, he gets all the glory and the honor and the money. But... um, he wants them to also share in the joys, and he acknowledges them almost every chance he gets, and even his family and his four children and everything else. I mean, he's a, he's a beautiful example of how sport can help one develop into an extraordinary human being in all phases of life. And people are, he's an ambassador to tennis that is priceless because he's teaching a, a different way of being in this and he was perhaps certainly one of the three or four greatest players of all time and might have been in some estimation the greatest player ever i want to turn the page and talk a little about something i'm really passionate about and i and i think you're the best to talk to about it and it's and it's based off of your great book the power of story and i want to really get into and learn more from you about our inner voice our inner critic we all have this inner voice or it's a coach or a critic and 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 you talk a lot about you know how can we align our outer voice and our inner voice and once we once we can do that we're in true authenticity and i'm going to just le- read another quote here um, that you said one time it says the power broker in your life is the voice that no one hears 
how well you revisit the tone and content of your private voice is what determines the quality of your life. It is the master storyteller and the stories we tell ourselves are our reality. I would be curious and I'm anxious to learn from you. How do you go about talking to someone about their inner voice? How does somebody know if they have a bad inner voice and how, how can we start to optimize it? So um, I just you know, published a book with Dr. Sheila Olson Walker and um, there's several chapters in that book devoted to this notion of an inner voice. And the more I have spanned, I started out using telemetry and having athletes tell me what their inner voice, what they were saying to themselves as they were competing and picked it up and put it on tape. And we analyzed it and looked at what was going on, then synchronized that with, an, with video and uh, match charting situations. And it was an enormously fruitful time for me. But, um, I've come to really, really appreciate the power of one's voice that no one hears but them. It's the only voice you'll have that you can listen to until your death. It's going to be with you. And that private voice actually starts forming. There's evidence it's starting to form prenatally that the auditory cortex of an infant is actually developing sufficiently so it actually can hear what the mother or the father and siblings are saying in the womb. And that voice um, begins to form. It becomes a, the, it's a neurological accumulation of all the voices that in that young child's life. And by the age of four or five, there's a fairly distinct inner voice separate from the private, from the public voice. I'm speaking to you with my public voice. Um, and my public voice, I can conceal a lot of what's going on. I just say what, what I believe is supposed to be said. And then there's the inner voice that may be saying something very different. And as you said, when my outer voice and my inner voice are actually kind of singing from the same hymnal, you know, when, when there is a congruence of my outer and inner voice, it comes across as genuineness or sincerity. And we crave that in people because we hate it when we see it in politics where people say everything they want to say to get elected. And when they get elected, it was their private voice. What they really wanted starts coming out and we're horrified. This is the person I voted for. What, what am I talking about here? So the private voice the more awareness we have that that voice is a central player in our destiny, uh, we can begin to form that voice and intentionally make um, investments that will get it more aligned with who you want to be. Um, I will tell you, your the ultimate coach in your life is your private voice. And that coach can be an absolute nightmare or can be one of the greatest coaches you could ever have in your life. And if you've had great coaches and great parents, you probably have a pretty healthy, pretty functional inner voice. If you've had really people who are, you know, really dysfunctional in whatever, whether it's coaches or parenting, and they they say terrible things like, you're never going to amount to anything. You're the dumbest 
I don't know how you, how, how are you my son or daughter? You're such a dumbhead. You're an embarrassment. And you say that as a parent because you want to motivate them. You want them to get them off their duff and to actually do something with their life. But unfortunately, that's not how it always is interpreted. Um, it comes across on the inside as it's an input into this neuroprocessor that begins to form the way in which you speak to yourself. And every time you fail, you remember, you kind of say to yourself, you're a dumbhead, you're never going to amount to anything. And as a player, you know, I have a terrible forehand. If I, I, I hate my, I'm never going to have a forehand. Well, that voice is, you know, your, your brain is always listening. It's always on. And the closest voice to um, that command central, I sometimes refer to it, is your private voice. It's, in a sense, it's the brain speaking to itself. It's the brain coaching itself. So we have to be very careful how we speak to ourselves. You want to speak to yourself the way you would, in this situation, the way you would speak to someone you deeply cared about in the same situation. And it immediately changes the messaging. Immediately. How would you speak to someone that your best friend? And would you ever allow what you're saying to yourself to be projected onto a jumbotron and that you would say, I'm proud of the way I was coaching myself. Or, as most people would say, I would die if people knew what I was actually saying. What I actually saying to myself, I'm my worst critic. I, I am embarrassed that I, even, I don't even know where it comes from. And so most people have a mixed bag. They have some good coaching voice. Um, uh, you know, you know, inputs, and then there are these highly dysfunctional ones. And you think, well, I'm just moving air around inside my head. But in fact, you're actually creating neurological inputs. There is an input that's being made, a little etch. It's, it's just a mark that's being made. And then if you do it repeatedly, it creates a neural highway that actually impacts the way in which you see yourself and the processor is actually affected by those neurological inputs. So I'm a, I'm a staunch believer that we need to train that private voice. And for me, the way in which that's trained best is through handwriting or printing, not on a computer. We did a whole bunch of work to see which was more compelling and which actually registers in the brain. Uh, and what we found is that this executive function uh, actually is more impacted by moving of your hand, and you're actually moving across this corpus callosum. You're actually you're pausing a little bit to think in the creative mode called the default mode neurologically, and uh, it actually stimulates. Um, the brain uh, to start processing information in a certain way. Your brain is listening for instructions mm. and the instructions should be coming from your private voice. And uh, so the more you write, so we have people keep journals and you write about the things that you're going to be ex you know, exposed to or things that are giving you trouble in the past and your private voice just goes wild and you start training your voice to actually 
deliver a different internal message to command central. And if you do it enough, it's called myelination. You actually myelinate these motor pathways, neural pathways that they become much more efficient and resistant to, um, you know, being siphoned off into something else, uh, something that's maybe uh, historically part of your uh, neurological library. And so we can change behavior in a significant way by changing the tone and the content and messaging of our private voice. Well said. I would love to take it even a step further. I've said this a couple times on a couple recent podcasts, but I had a chance to speak to a hundred high school students and I had them do an activity before lunch where they all wrote on a note card. I said, before you go to lunch, I want you to write down what are the words you say to yourself when you're struggling in a competition or things aren't going well, write it down. I'm going to go through them while you're at lunch. And when I went through them, um, there's 120 kids in the audience, 80 of the, po- of the note cards were negative. 20 were positive. I would say another 20 were in this neutral side. It could go either way, depending on the, on the tone. It blew my mind. And I I went in and I said some of the things that you just said about, would you talk to your best friend this way? Would you be proud of this if it was on the jumbo screen? And I'm curious if we could take it a step further, maybe it's to scratch my own itch here, Dr. Larry, but how do you go about changing some of that? You talked about journaling, you know, is it specific sentences? Is it, you know, how do, how do I, how do I get kids to change the negative into positive? Is it as simple as, Hey, just be more positive. Or is there some more tactical ways to get there? Well, first of all, what you did is step one is to increase their awareness awareness of the toxicity of the voice. And would they really want this voice put into their son or daughter's head they'd have to carry this with them for the rest of their life. Is it an asset or is it a liability? And then have them make a commitment. You know, we have this remarkable capacity as a human species. I, I call it the evolutionary masterpiece for reflective consciousness. The brain can actually observe itself working. I mean, how three pounds of mm-hmm. brain matter <laughs> can produce conscious awareness is a neurological, biological mystery no one understands. but we have that capacity. So you can catch yourself and say, wait a minute, that's not, the, that's not the message I would like to give my son or my daughter or my wife or my husband. I'm not going to give that to myself. I am decidedly negative. I didn't choose this voice. If you have a lot of negative, um, toxic stuff coming up inside of you, you probably had a lot of parenting that was maybe more decidedly negative maybe from one side, maybe a male of his father. Or you might have had coaching uh, from people that coaches who were often coaches focus on the negative. They're always thinking that's the way to get people motivated, you know, and they are always calling you out when you make mistakes. And they may say things like, you dumbhead, Lair, what's the matter with you? Wake up. What planet are you from, Lair? And I can still remember coaches screaming and yelling those kinds of messages because I played all the sports, nine years of baseball, basketball, and, you know, all the sports I was involved in. And I watch them from the sidelines. I have three boys and they were all involved in sport. One played professional tennis and I have seven grandkids and they're all involved in sport. And I watch all these coaches and how they, so it's not surprising that we have a lot of negative stuff going on. The first step is awareness. 
And then it's a commitment to change it. And when you start to realize you're really ripping on yourself, let's let's change it. And let's try to come up with something positive. And imagine what would uh, one of your superstars be saying to themselves? What would, if you're a tennis, what would Roger Federer be saying to himself in this situation? And right away, you change the tone and the and the messaging, and uh, <clears throat> and then a lot of writing, a lot of journaling, and a commitment there to do that. And when, within the span of about thirty to sixty days, you'll start recognizing uh, there's been a seismic shift in the way you're coaching yourself. And it actually, it's never something that you regret. I mean, you only only regret not having worked harder at it when you were younger, because it actually is liberating and you're more comfortable in your own skin than you ever were before. Mm -hmm. And not that you're not critical of yourself or that when you, you know, you don't, you know, you may, maybe that private was, come on, Jim, you're not giving hundred percent effort here. Step up. Let's get it going. Don't fool yourself. You're not fooling yourself. You're not giving your best. Your attitude right now is really crummy. Let's clean it up. Now, that might be a very good inner voice coaching message. It's not that, oh, you're the greatest, oh, you're the superstar, you should always be. No, it's reality-based, and it's what a great coach should be saying to you. But it's not you're a dumbhead, you're stupid, you're an idiot, and all the labeling that goes on and the fact that you can't, it's a bad story. Where do you go from there? I want it to be, you know, something that's, encouraging it's optimistic but grounded in the real world and truthful one of my favorite parts about mental performance is that it, it involves having a plan is what i'm just beginning to learn as, as i'm new in this industry and what i mean by that dr lair is that you and when things go bad instead of just um being reactive you're proactive you thought about right. what's the process i'm going to have either to get back into focus to get back into motivation or to return my negative self-talk to positive self-talk so there's got to be a plan in place and so i'm thinking for guys like you and, and and myself someday when you're working with athletes is coming up with the plan we know that adversity is going to hit we know you're going to hit a bad shot we know that this errors are going to happen so what let's practice let's talk about beforehand what are you going to do what are you going to say specifically what is your self-talk going to be when that happens so then when you do step on the court and you airball a free throw you have that already pre-programmed sentence ready to go so that was exactly my thinking when i developed what is referred to as the 16 second cure i don't know whether you've ever heard about tell, that tell me. But... so um I started, you know, videotaping all I had thousands of hours of video of top tennis players. And uh, just like if you wanted to learn how to hit a great forehand, you take the 10 best forehands in the world and videotape them and then take all of those 10 that are in common and teach those fundamentals. And that's a pretty good way to make sure you're not going to get too far off track. So I did the same thing on the mental side. I took video of not the during point time, but the between point time. And uh, I started looking at what are the top 10 in the world doing between points and compare that with people who are not nearly as, as effective as competitors. Interesting. And, and it was it's like night and day. 
And um, so based on that, we developed a between point training time based on what the best players in the world, the top 10 players in the world did, all of them did in pretty much the same way. And at that time, there was, you could allow, you were allowed 20 to 25 points today. It depends on the term, but usually 25 points between, 25 seconds between points. And we're going to ritualize that mm. to make sure that you're ready to launch. And there's a, the, the initial stage is what I call the positive physical response stage. You, with your physical body, you turn as if nothing, there's no problem after you've made a bad mistake, or if you made a great shot, maybe a little pump. A little excitement but then you go into what is referred what i refer to as a relaxation stage you kind of reset stabilize then you come up and you start your preparation stage which is really thinking about what you want to do on the next point and then you launch into your rituals either you're bouncing in the ball you're you know visualizing where you want to hit the serve and or the return and so we started doing that and we put a video together and it became the most watched video, I think, in tennis history worldwide. <laughs> and uh, that was like 30 years ago. And I've been asked that it was all these, it was called 16 second cure because Steffi Graf at that time had this, took the shortest amount of time between points. And uh, so we called it, you got to at least take 16 seconds because no player in the top 10 took less than 10. And the, the worst were always like grab the ball and just go serve or angry and upset and go. They had no routines. And so um, we just recently redid that uh, with modern players and all of the 30 years later. And it's, um, you know, it really has had quite an impact on the game. And it's free. It's free to everyone. I, there's no fee for anyone to get it. The other one was on YouTube. This one. You can access it by going to gotta gotta tennis.com gotta gotta tennis.com and you'll see the link there and you click it and you can watch it um and it has all these protocols so it's basically what you just said is preparing yourself for adversity so it's just you know exactly what how you're going to respond and you you uh, you don't get upset when you're ahead or behind or miss four terrible shots in whatever sport you're in. And this was just an example in tennis, but it can be done in every sport. Mm. That's It comes together. I came up with my seven tactical skills for an elevated mindset. And you touched on so many of them there. You talk about focus and awareness, routines and right. habits of excellence. I mean, that's the epitome in my, in my opinion of, of being mentally sharp, mentally tough is can you avoid distraction, especially when uh, you have a crowd there? I mean, how, how oftentimes you see people looking up into the crowd and they're lost in there, but you see how often on the other side, do you see some of the best performers? They couldn't tell you if the place was full, empty, who was in the stadium Absolutely. because it, it's not, it's irrelevant. So we, uh, you know, we took video, very careful video of what players who were the best in the world did with their eyes. Mm -hmm. And we found that the best players in the world controlled their eyes. Um, the visual, the dominant sense is the visual sense. And players who are looking around and, you know, eyes wandering, their mind tends to follow the eyes. And so you just, so we kind of set this routine where you either keep your eyes on the strings is the strings represent a neutral resting place for the eyes and it just kind of lowers heart rate. We used it had 
heart rate monitors and we would, you know, showed what the ideal range of heart rate was before you start a point that actually was conducive to your playing to your best, all of that stuff. And, uh, and then if you're walking, you want to have your eyes down, but not wandering. And so the first thing to control the mind is to control where your eyes are. And the more your eyes, so a player who's furious about a line call, they keep looking back at that line and it just infuriates. It starts triggering all these powerful anger and frustration responses, emotional and primitive uh, responses. But if they go to their strengths, turn, walk away from it, have a positive physical response, take a deep breath, relax, it doesn't matter. And all of a sudden, they're starting to become a better competitor. And it's true in every sport. So kind of how we're wired. That's right. The power of ritual. Cool. I want to transition. I definitely want to get into the book here. So Wise Decisions, a science-based approach to making better choices. You've written uh, numerous books. I think 16 is what you're at now. What what led you to get to this book? And um, what do what can people kind of learn and delve from this book without reading so it? This was my book? 18th. 18th. Sorry. <laughs> Who's counting, right? (laughs) So um, every book I write uh, represents another, you know, critical insight that I think might be valuable to other people. And um, I don't just write books to, you know, get more people to recognize who I am. I I write hoping that maybe because I've been very, very fortunate to have access to people that very few people have access to. And if I have insights, and I'm also a research guy, I read research, you know, I've been reading since four o'clock this morning, if I showed you all the research articles that I'm reading, um, and they're, you know, very technical, very important in an industry, but no one reads them. That is in the applied realm. So my my world, I like to have one foot in the academic world where I'm listening and trying to understand what's going on in the research world, and then one foot in the applied. And I'm, my role is to try to bring value from the science world into the real world without bastardizing the, the results of that study. And so it's, a, you know, it's like walking a tightrope. Right? It's very difficult. But I enjoy doing that. I think that's maybe what I do best. Um, so, you know, the, the more that I got into um, this whole area, what when I look at all the lives that I have had the opportunity to be involved in and where they ended up, and I can go back and look at, you know, what were the decisions they made that actually came back to haunt them and actually changed drastically the direction of their career. Um, The decisions to what time to get up in the morning, which tournament should I play in? Should I try to make the Olympic team? What coach should I have? Um, Should I have my parents there or not there? Should I take a loan out to pay for my expenses? There's a million decisions in, in one 15 minute period, we can make 15 decisions. Most of them are absolutely automatic. We don't even think about it. And some of them actually have a cascading effect. You decided to sleep in, watch a late movie, you're late for practice, we're late for work, 
so you don't have breakfast. And then you have a, a very important meeting, a conference meeting, or you're doing a presentation at the business, or you're playing someone on a, on a court somewhere, and your blood sugar is running really low, you're irritable, you're cranky because you really haven't, you're out of rhythm. And all of a sudden the performance crashes and that may have real consequences for uh, the future. And some decisions are basically inconsequential. But we've learned that some of the most important decisions become the building block for the big ones. And the big ones change the trajectory of your life. So this book was, no one, to my knowledge, has written a really practical science-based approach to how do we make better choices in life? Follow your choices. You're going to end up understanding where you are. And unfortunately, our choices often just occur instinctively. We just, yeah, I don't know what I'm referencing. I'm just, yeah, that's it. I'm going to do this. But you're going somewhere to make that decision. And first of all, we want to go, we want to know what neurologically, where in the brain are the decisions actually made? And it's really complicated. Neuroscience, you know, we're very complicated creatures and our neuroprocessor is extremely complicated. There's an area of the brain called the human insula. And it has networks to just about every important part of the brain and it collects information. And whether that's the central processing center exactly, neuroscience isn't sure, but it's a central player. There is an area of your brain that actually is involved in making a decision. Some are purely instinctive, it's almost like hardwired. Others are much more reflective. And our best decisions that are really important are made when we're getting information from every part of our brain, our logical brain, our intuitive brain, all the emotions that are kind of maybe raging through our body. Um, all There's a whole vast array of things that we need to consider as data points for making important decisions. And so the book is all about, you know, setting up a system that is eventually made automatic, that you actually have a vetting system for making decisions that actually makes you a, a person who makes better choices, which can, and I want that to be true with children at the earliest stages to start teaching them how to make wise decisions and choices that withstand the test of time. And the book is all about that. I think it's a very, interesting kind of layout of how this remarkable mind-body continuum um, um, actually comes to some kind of decision about what should be done or not done here. So you have the decision-making process is one thing, and then actually following through with it is another. But, um, you know, we are, we are basically the consequence of the decisions we make. And most of them, we don't even know what we're referencing. And this book is actually designed to make sure that doesn't happen, that you're conscious and intentional in vetting it through the right lenses before you make the decision. And some might be within just a few minutes. Others might take days to get right, maybe months. Should I get that divorce? Should I um, buy that house and go into debt? Should I go back to school and get a PhD? There are a lot of issues here that require, you know, it's just not your gut feel. You have to get all the facts on the table. What do I really want here long term? 
Um, what are the alternative choices that I might have in front of me? What are the real consequences if I don't get this right, if I don't do it or if I do do it? What are the risks on both sides? Um, and what am I completely certain about here before I make the decision? What are the facts on the table? There's a whole series of things that are kind of checkpoints. Just like you go and you have your car checked before you drive away. You need to go to the checkpoints and make sure that, um, that there, you've checked the boxes before you make the decision. And one of the big, big insights, and this is probably very obvious in your own life, never make decisions when you're emotionally hot, when you are either really excited or really down and negative. The whole system gets hijacked with powerful emotion. You really get excited and enthusiastic and are fired up about that car you want. This is just, it's got you going. But the reality is you never buy that car because you don't have the money to buy it. It's not practical. It's never going to work out and you're going to regret it probably for as long as you have that car. But you let those emotions overwhelm the decision-making process and you've made a bad decision. And that happens to everyone. I told my dad, I'm reading Lair's new book, Wise Decisions. And I was starting to go through the, the byline of the science space. He goes, oh, because man, that's great for you because you're so indecisive. And I, and I am, I am self-proclaimed. I'm very indecisive. I have been my whole life, Lair. But I, I also would say I'm indecisive, but I'm I'm just a slow decision maker. I'm very deliberate and I, I, I have a hard time making decisions quickly. So some might call that indecisiveness. Others might call that more patience. I like to call it I'm a little bit more patient than I am indecisive. But I think one of the things, I know we're getting close on time here. But one of the cool things I pulled out from it that I'm starting to use already, Dr. Lair, is the seven step process in the book. Right. And we don't have to go through each one in total depth, but if we could just pull that out for listeners uh, that haven't read the book yet, would you mind going through that? Sure, I'd be happy to. So, you know, uh, in making decisions, first of all, I would say, Jeff, that you said, I mean, uh, DJ, that that on important decisions, you tend to be a little more indecisive. I that's the way I want you. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're going into a restaurant, <laughs> and you're ordering from a menu yeah. and you can't decide and you wait till everyone else orders and then you ask everyone what do you think i should have we got a problem <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> there are two ends of that continuum so we've learned that there are, um our decision making process changes when we start looking at the decision through various lenses um, so the first lens is that, you know, there's a part of us, we'll call it your best self, the best version of yourself. And it's not fantasy. Sometimes you're absolutely the very best. You, you're really proud of who you are. And if you can crystallize that and then get that sense and then look at the decision through that lens, oftentimes it changes. Another lens is, you know, who are you morally at your best? When you're really morally, you really get it right. When you're treating people the way you want to treat them and you really feel great about that aspect of you. So you're looking at through a moral lens, kind of like what's the right thing to do here in terms of the impact on others. And then, you know, we all have in a sense a purpose, you know, the old Cherokee um, wisdom um, saying that, May you, it's a wish actually, may you live long enough to know 
why you were born. And, uh, you know, we all have, what is your main purpose for living? If you've articulated that, and I, we call it your Yoda, your your own decision advisor. It's not the Yoda of Star Wars, but it's your own decision advisor. If you have equipped your Yoda with this best self and with your, you know, what's the morally right thing to do here? And what is your purpose for living? And you vet that decision through your ultimate mission in life, the reason why you are here. Um, the most powerful one of all is for me, what I call the tombstone legacy. I've done this with thousands of people and I, the feedback I get on this lasts lifetimes and it's unbelievable. And I, you know, most of the time we don't get to choose what what's inscribed on our gravestone that's done by other people. And it may or may not be true. But you have a chance to go in and to really determine what is going to be etched on that tombstone um, that would for you represent the most successful life possible. That ultimately these six words or these two short sentences represent the absolute pinnacle of how you would like to be remembered and what your life was like when you were here. So it might be filled with integrity, uh, always a great sense of inspiration and joy to others. It might be an extraordinary mother or father, son or daughter. And then you get into the, the details about that. But whatever's etched on that tombstone, you know, um, Stephen Covey once said, um, and he's 100% right, start with the end in mind. And so if you know where you want to end up, I'm going to call that getting home, which you want to have on your tombstone. It reflects almost no one puts on there three gold medals that you uh, made $3 million before the age of 30. All that just falls off. No one really cares about that. It will most importantly be the connections you had with other people. And that's a huge insight. So you put those words in stone in your own mind, and then you move back, and then you go, wait a minute, what am I going to have to do? Because those are all serious upgrades. You don't just get those by wanting them. You're going to have to work at that every single day, just like you work on the bicep or tricep. If you want it, you can have it, but that's a serious upgrade. And so once you know what it is that getting home represents for you, and that's what that tombstone represents. Now vet that decision through that lens. Is this going to help you? Is it related in any way to getting home? If it doesn't, just let it go. And some of these won't relate at all, but some of them will really clarify the decision and then look at it through your core values and your beliefs and, you know, um, something like a personal credo, which represents kind of the most important architecture for you know for you and 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 how you run your life and i i wrote a book called leading with character and that was the whole book mm -hmm. and a journal that actually helped you construct that um that credo and uh, uh, got it <laughs> so um all of those are reference points they represent a lens and you may just get one or two of them that you actually prefer. It may be your, what's on your tombstone, getting home. Is this going to help you get home? If it does, 
then we should go in that direction. And But there are a number of things that you want to consider, and th these are just the lens part, but decision-making is a complex. So we want to check our gut. That's a source of wisdom. May not be right, though. Check what our conscious, analytical, logical mind is saying. You know, let's look at the facts. What do we really know? Would you... You, what do you know for sure? And what are your emotions? There's a wisdom in your emotions that are, you know, it's thousands of years of evolution. Your emotions have, can be, if you can help kind of decode what they're saying to you, what, what, are you, what are you feeling emotionally about this? And are you in a good place emotionally to make a good decision, a very balanced state of emotion where you're not needy, you're not just kind of in this frantic, angry, frustrated, or super excited state. We have to be careful. Postpone the decision until you are able to actually get your arms around it in a very, very effective way. So those are some of the lenses uh, that um, might be considered in, um, in making wise decisions. Absolutely. I see environments decisions and habits kind of all in this same under the same umbrella and that every time you commit to one of those it's either bringing you closer or further away from the type of person that you want to become one of my if not my favorite quotes of all time is james clear says every action you take is a vote for the type of person that you wish to become and for me, that's, that's, that's my lens, Dr. Lair, is that everything I do is a vote. And just like in any political um, stand, you it's not one vote that's going to bring somebody to president's multiple votes. So your Ooh. life is a continuous amount of all these votes you're putting in. So yes, eating, you know, fast food one night, is that going to do anything significant? No, but it's the multiple days after days after days. So 100%. Per just, just personally for me, just kind of putting it out there that something that works for me is thinking about all the actions and now what i'm introducing now is all the decisions you make are a vote for the type of person you wish to become is it bringing you closer or further away from the that type of person you got it you're a fast learner <laughs> <laughs> i'm learning from the greats man just like yourself um cool so let's close down with this 40 years you've been doing this dr Lair. it's just incredible you've got a ton of books so much wisdom i'm curious is what is something that you know now that you wish you knew, let's say 30 years ago? What's something that you wish you knew that you know now? I have to say just about everything. <laughs> <laughs> Is there something that stands out? Because, um, you know, when I got into this field, there was no field. There was no such thing as performance or psych or sports psych. I was, well, I was kind of a pioneer and I just had to kind of find my way. So a lot of the assumptions I was making, my understanding, I thought mental toughness was all mental. Mm. And then I thought, well, it's mental and emotional. Well, mental toughness is mental, it's emotional, it's physical, and it's spiritual. And most importantly, it's spiritual. It's mm. your purpose for being there, purpose for playing, for chasing, and all that kind of stuff. So I would say it's, for me, I, I, I'm a learner. I love to learn. And I love to peel back the onion skin a little more if I can. And if I come up with something that is probably quite interesting and exciting for me, and I have the opportunity and the, and the bandwidth to write about it, I will do it.
And every one of my books was just exactly that. So when you look at my early work, I haven't really had to pull much back because I've tried to really stay pretty much within the science lines. But I, uh, I, I really feel like so much of what I've learned is more nuanced. And it has really helped me to make better decisions about how to help people and how to actually, um, you know, live my own life more effectively and to actually work with my three sons and their, and their children and their spouses and so forth. So I just feel very grateful that I've had the opportunities that I've had. And um, hopefully some of these lessons that I've learned can shorten the the runway a little bit for everybody else uh, that, you know, I know is kind of searching for a lot of these same answers. And that would be uh, very meaningful to me just to know that one person has advanced their life as a consequence of some of the things that I have learned and have written about. Is there anything that you've changed your mind on in the last 40 years? With mental changed my mind. Oh, I've changed my mind uh, on a lot of things. <laughs> um, the, you know, just a, 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 I, I guess the biggest thing is you have to hold everything um, tentatively. That I was convinced that this is the way it is and my version of the world is the right version and i used to have pretty pretty strong beliefs that i've got it wired up right and then you begin to realize that a lot of the real all the evidence suggests that about 80 percent of what we know now will be found to be either partially untrue or completely untrue <laughs> so for me i've kind of back up and say wait a minute jim you're too full of yourself um, maybe you need to hold more things tentatively and continue to search because the truth is probably not what you think it is. And I've found that to be true in almost everything I'm, I'm involved in. I want to know more. I want more information. I want to see what now we've learned that we didn't know before and how that changes my story. My story as a parent, my story as a as a performance psychologist, my story as, um, you know, uh, someone who has had all these opportunities and you should know that by now and stuff. And, you know, it's, it's becoming more and more difficult. I just know that the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know that much. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Awesome. What a great message. So as we close down here, Dr. Lair, though, the new book, Wise Decisions is out. Where can people get it and how can people learn more from you? So uh, the book is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's pretty much available everywhere. It's published by Wiley. And um, yeah, I have a lot of assets on my LinkedIn page. Uh, you can go there, uh, Jim Lair. Um, and then I have a website jim uh, Lair L-O-E-H-R dot com. And I have all kinds of assets and videos and all kinds of stuff forever. So you can get lost in that. And uh, I'm hoping there is something there that uh, actually makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for coming back on for round two. It's such a pleasure and always a joy. 
Thank you, DJ. I've, I enjoy your, uh, you, you do your homework and I really appreciate that. You know what you're talking about and your questions are very insightful. So it's been a joy to come back and uh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and I wish you all the best as well.